0: Right after Jesus had called Philip to follow him, Philip, in his excitement, went running to his friend Nathanael. And when he found Nathanael, Philip excitedly said, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel Nathanael responded, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Well, Nazareth had a well-deserved, very rotten reputation. It was a small town, about 450 people. It was located on one of the main caravan routes in the province of Galilee. And it connected the the ports on the Mediterranean Sea with the towns to the east. And so traders and business people from many different nations busied the streets of Nazareth. Now, nearby was the Roman city of Sepphoris, which was a large city of over 2,500 people. And Sepphoris is only six miles to the, the northwest of Nazareth. That's about from downtown Emmett to Black Canyon Dam, about, about that distance. But in order to get to Sepphoris, which was up on a hill, you had to pass through Nazareth. And Sepphoris was the capital city of the region of Galilee, which housed a large Roman garrison. And as one historian put it, Sepphorus was rich, cosmopolitan, deeply influenced by Greek culture, and surrounded by a panoply, panoply, panoply of races and, and religions. King, or Herod Antipas, when he was Herod and, and king at the time of Jesus in Galilee, he made his capital city to be Sepphorus. And, and so Nazareth was overrun by Gentiles, Roman soldiers, Herod soldiers, And the only reason that it would ever have any prominence at all was that it was the hometown of Jesus. Nazareth was shoddy, corrupt. It was a halfway stop between the port cities and the towns inland. Anyone who thought of Nazareth thought of living among pagans, Gentiles, Romans, profiteers. They thought of all the dregs of society that these kind of people attract. And even though there were people in Nazareth at the time that tenaciously held to traditional Jewish culture, they weren't well thought of by other Galileans. And they were especially maligned by those who lived in Judea because the people who lived in Judea, where Jerusalem is located, they didn't like any Galileans. There was a lot of prejudice. There was a lot of bigotry. And the Jewish carpenters and craftsmen who worked and built the city of Sepphoris lived in Nazareth. Most certainly, a carpenter by the name of Joseph would have walked to Sepphorus on many occasions in order to practice his trade. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And by popular consensus, not much, probably not any. But Philip answered Nathaniel and said, "Nathaniel, come and see. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to come and see when we come to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. We see that the greatest news ever proclaimed in Israel, ever proclaimed anywhere, came to a young woman living in Nazareth who would have been 14 years old at the most, one of the humblest of Israel's people. And Mary said exactly that when she let her praise God and expressed her humility. She said, my soul exalts in the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior for he has regard for the humble state of of his bondslave, and nine months later it was to poor humble shepherds, outcast to whom the greatest news ever came, when the angels chorus glory to God in the highest in peace among men, on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. You know, whenever we consider those to whom the good news came, we must recite a list punctuated by the words poor and humble. Jesus, those whom Jesus called the poor in spirit, and the word translated poor in poor in spirit means to, to crouch, to, to cower, to be beggarly, to, to be needy. Jesus comes to the needy. One commentator remarked, the angel might have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas's daughter, who was fair, rich, clad in gold, embroidered raiment, attended by retinue of maids-in-waiting, but God preferred a lowly maid from a mean town, a lowly maid from a mean town. And after and if the congregation, that incarnation, that is Jesus coming today, becoming flesh, if it happened today, it would be the same. The Lord would not be born in Jerusalem or Rome, but he would be born on the ordinary streets of what would be considered a nameless unknown town. When we come to the announcement of the angel to Mary, we must accept the spiritual fact of the incarnation. That the Lord comes to needy people. He comes to needy people. The Lord comes to those who realize that without him, they can't make it. They can't do it. The Lord comes to those who acknowledge their weaknesses, who acknowledge their spiritual lack. The good news is not for the proud. It's not for the self-sufficient because they do not receive it. So please turn once again to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now, I don't know what angels are thinking or how the Lord dispatches them to minister to those who will inherit salvation. But I have to think that given his record, the angel Gabriel would be a little bit more than concerned about a lowly maid in a mean town. Because we can look at his record a little bit. Six months before, Gabriel appeared to Zacharias when he was ministering in the temple. Zacharias was the father of John the Baptist. And in that encounter, on account of his unbelief, Zacharias was struck speechless. Remember that? A condition that remained until his son was born. Uh, Nine months later, his son John. Zacharias' encounter had been very similar to Gabriel's terrifying appearance to the prophet Daniel. 500 years before, and the result was the same. Daniel, too, fell mute and dropped like a rock on his face when he saw Gabriel. Well, what about Mary? Boy, you got to wonder. If Zacharias and Daniel hadn't handled it well, what about this young, humble maid from Nazareth? Uh, verse 26 of Luke chapter 1. It says, now in the sixth month. That's not the sixth month of the calendar year. That's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy when... When Elizabeth, up in verse 24, became pregnant in the sixth month of her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, Gabriel said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. In, Lazarus, in, Nazareth, in Nazareth lived a young woman named Mary, a virgin. She was gauged to a man by the name of, of Joseph. Now Mary would have been 13 or 14 years old at the most. In those days, when a young woman reached puberty, she was old enough to marry. Joseph was probably had been a little bit older because he would not marry until he could provide a house and a living for his wife and his family. And as I thought about this, you know, this whole idea of of teenagers, that that age group we call teenagers, that's a relatively new idea in modern society. In medieval days, at age 13 or 14, a young man would go to the university, or more than likely at age 9 or 10, he would begin an apprenticeship, either with his father or someone else. It could be in farming or in trade or whatever it is, and, and he would begin working every day at those kinds of things, and it was the same way in colonial America. Benjamin Franklin apprenticed in a printing shop at age 14. Young men attended Yale or Harvard. Yale and Harvard were established for the training of ministers at age 13 or 14. And John Quincy Adams, who would become the sixth president of the United States, at the age of 10, he served in diplomatic service in France with his father, John Adams, during the Revolutionary War. At age 14, John Quincy Adams traveled to St. Petersburg, Russia, where he served as the Secretary of American Diplomat Francis Dana. Now, that is unusual to have that kind of diplomatic service, but it shows that by the age of 14, a young man was already gainfully employed or apprenticed in a trade or in farming or in government service or in the ministry, training for the ministry, ministry, as he was preparing himself to support a wife and family. Now, Joseph and Mary were engaged to be married, it says. And this engagement or betrothal period lasted a year, and it was legally binding. In fact, it took a formal divorce to get out of the engagement. They had not yet come together, but the community saw them as married The families considered them as married during that time, and this year-long period gave the couple the opportunity to get to know one another and prepare for their family life together. Joseph would have spent this time building their house, probably on his father's house. It could have been addition to his father's house, or if he was employed in another trade or in farming or something, he would... uh, he could build his own house, but he would then practice his trade during this time, which was that of a, a carpenter. Now, meeting Gabriel would have been intimidating for Mary, to say the least. His appearance probably wasn't as awesome as it was with Daniel or Zacharias. Probably, he probably toned it down a little bit. I think he would have for, for Mary, but Mary would have been frightened out of her senses. In verse 29, the New American Standard says that she was perplexed. That is not a good translation. As much as I like the New American Standard Bible, that's really not a good translation. The English Standard Version gets it more correctly, says that she was greatly troubled. She was greatly troubled. It was the same word used to describe Herod when the Magi came into Jerusalem asking, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And Herod was greatly troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. When Herod was troubled, people were going to die. And so all Jerusalem. The word deeply troubled, it means to be agitated. To agitate greatly, all stirred up and troubled inside. We got a new washer this last week, and it still has an agitator, but not like the older ones have agitators. But you know what an agitator does? It, it stirs it up. It gets everything going a different direction. So Mary probably felt like she was going to pass out, needing to sit down. And it's like Gabriel comes into the house and blurts out this buoyant greeting. Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, Gabriel's greeting consisted of two parts. First of all, Mary was the favored one. She was favored by God. Literally, she was graced by God. She was a recipient of God's grace, his unmerited favor. And Gabriel said in, in this my translation, greetings, favorite one, but the word translated greetings literally means rejoice. Rejoice. You are the one who is graced by God. Mary was a recipient of God's special favor. Her humble estate and matching humility made her the ideal receptor of God's greatest favor. No woman has ever lived on earth to whom God has given more grace than Mary. God bypassed Judea, Jerusalem, and the temple, and came to a despised country and a despised town, and a humble humble young woman named Mary. And the second part of her divinely favored, uh, or of Gable's declaration is, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. It was essential that Mary know that the Lord was with her, that his presence would be with her, that he would go with her in the same way that he was with the great saints of God in Old Testament history. It echoes the words of Moses when he was encouraging Joshua, and Joshua was to lead the people militarily and every other way into the land of promise, and, and it was going to be a tough thing. And, and Moses said to Joshua, Be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or tremble at them, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Then Moses called to Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance." The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. You see, Mary is soon going to learn that the Lord will be with her and give her courage when she tells Joseph that she's already pregnant. The Lord will be with her and Joseph when they journey to Bethlehem when she's about to give birth. The Lord will be with them, with her, when they escape the sword of Herod and flee to Egypt. And the Lord will be with her when she sees her son hanging on a cross, dying for the sins of the world. And Mary's response to Gabriel's greeting shows us what kind of person she was. Verse 29, but she was perplexed or greatly agitated at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The literal sense is that Mary kept thinking this over. Kept pondering the meaning of Gabriel's salutation. She, she meditated on. She tried to figure out what its significance was. And, and this is really a remarkable picture. She was young. She was inexperienced. But she was not flighty. She was not shallow. This shallow young thing she was reflective and she was meditative and i think of the reflective heart of mary i also think of the reflecting heart of a woman by the name of sarah edwards and sarah edwards was the wife of jonathan edwards you remember jonathan edwards was the the man of god who used greatly of god in the great awakening in our country jonathan edwards still considered to this day to be the greatest theologian theologian in america Little is known about Sarah Edwards' early life, except she was born in 1710 to James Pierpoint, who was one of the foremost founders of Yale. And Yale, like all Ivy League uh, colleges, was originally founded to train ministers for the gospel. And even as a young girl, Sarah was noted for her piety. And years before her marriage to Jonathan Edwards, when she was only 13, 13 years old, he said this of her, They say there's a young lady in New Haven who is loved of that great being who made and rules the world. And there are certain seasons in which the great being, in some way or other invisible, comes to her and fills her mind with exceeding sweet delight. And that she hardly cares for anything except to meditate on him. You cannot persuade her to do anything wrong or sinful if you would give her all the world, lest she should offend that great being. She's of a wonderful sweetness, calmness, and universal benevolence of mind, especially after this great God has manifested himself to her mind. She will sometimes go about from place to place singing sweetly and seems to always be full of joy and pleasure. She loves to be alone and seems to have someone invisible always conversing with her. Thirteen years old, probably about the same age as, as Mary You know, this is something that you young people need to hear if you're in that teenage bracket, as we call it right now. You know, you don't have to wait till you're grown up, all grown up, to have an intimate, loving relationship with your Savior, Jesus Christ, and and with God. You don't have to wait until you're all grown up to learn that, and I think this was part of your Sunday school lesson this morning, nothing is impossible with God. You can know that right now. God wants to meet you right where you are, right now. And to put it in biblical terms, you can make that decision to disciple, become a disciple of Jesus Christ, meaning you can apprentice yourself to Jesus Christ for a lifetime, right now, no matter what your age. Well, after Gabriel's greeting, his next words were shocking, and this is going to raise even more questions in Mary's mind. Verse 30, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Mary was told that she would have a baby boy. She was commanded to name him Jesus. The news is a thunderbolt, but the name Jesus was a common name then. In the Hebrew, it's Joshua. Joshua in the Hebrew, Jesus in the Greek. It means Jehovah saves, or the Lord saves, Yahweh saves. But Mary would not have grasped the full impact at this point. So so Gabriel continued in verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary was hearing that she would be the mother of the long-awaited Messiah. And this she would understand. Gabriel's words were a free interpretation of 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God gave what's called the Davidic covenant, that God made a covenant with the house of David that the Messiah would come and reign forever on the throne of David. And more than likely, Mary would have had these, heard these words read often in the synagogue. She, she knew these words. Every Jew knew of the messianic implications of these words. And these words would have been familiar to Mary as the promise of Jesus' second coming is to us today. Now, Mary did not doubt these words, that she would be the mother of the Son of the Most High. Mary understood the gist of Gabriel's announcement, as spectacular as this is, she would become pregnant She would name her son Jesus. He will be the Messiah. He will sit on the forever throne of David. Humble, reflective Mary thought about it and she understood. But she wondered at the physical mechanics of this whole thing. Verse 34 Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? She was not disbelieving. She was simply asking for enlightenment. How's this going to take place? How's God going to do this? And the angel answered in verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. That word translated overshadow gives us the proper understanding of of this. The the word is used in the Greek Old Testament to describe God's presence. God's overshadowing presence where Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, literally overshadowed it. And the glory of the Lord filled the, the tabernacle. It was used in the New Testament to describe the overshadowing presence at the Transfiguration where Jesus went up on the mountain with three of his disciples and where he was transformed before them in all his glory. And he stood with Moses and Elijah. And it says the cloud of glory overshadowed our Lord and his apostles. Peter, James, and John were caught up in, in this overshadowing presence of God. And however this happened biologically in Mary, one thing is certain, what was described by Gabriel is nothing less than the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And I think it's interesting that Luke who wrote this, what was his profession? He was a physician. He was a doctor. He knew how this stuff worked. But he was also a careful historian. He would have gone to Mary and got this firsthand from Mary and carefully wrote it down. And if, if Luke, the physician, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and Mary's story says that Jesus was born of a virgin, we know as a fact, Jesus was born of a virgin. Charles Wesley put it this way in the second verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the favored one. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Now, Gabriel's mission was pretty much complete, but he left Mary with a sign. You know, when we obey God, when we walk with him in his presence, we're not out there all alone trying to figure out what's what and You know, God's presence is with us. He comes to us and and God gives confirmation along the way. In our study in the adult Sunday school class, we saw how over and over again, God confirmed his covenant with Abraham and over and over again confirmed his covenant with Isaac and then, then Jacob. By faith, Abraham went, obeyed God and went out to a place not knowing where he was going, but at crucial places along the way, God made himself known. And reaffirmed his covenant and his promises. It's the same way in our own lives today, in our walk with God. By faith, we obey God. We may go out not knowing where we are going like Abraham. But at crucial times along the way, God comes to us and confirms with us what we are to do, where we are to go as we seek his will. And so now Gabriel leaves Mary with a sign in verse 36. Verse 36. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. Mary, this is how you're going to know all these things are are true. Elizabeth's miraculous pregnancy in her old age had been hidden from Mary by Elizabeth spending the last six months in seclusion in the hill country. This amazing news about Elizabeth... And then the time that Mary will go to spend time with this elderly godly woman and with Zacharias, not only did God confirm and give a sign to confirm his promise, but he also gave a woman to Mary named Elizabeth, a godly mature woman to walk alongside her and share in these miraculous events. And we're going to see more of Elizabeth next Sunday, but, but Gabriel's parting words said it all as he proclaimed Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Literally, it's for not impossible will be every word of God. For not impossible will be every word of God. And these words are an allusion to the Lord's words to to Sarah when she was barren, confirming that she would bear Isaac in her old age. And the Lord said to Abraham, Abraham, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. And at this time next year, Sarah will have a son. God would fulfill his word. Nothing is too hard for God. It's as simple as that. Mary knew instinctively that her story would be questioned. No one is going to believe this except Zacharias and Elizabeth. Joseph isn't going to believe it at first. It's going to take a visitation of dream by the angel of the Lord to convince Joseph. Mary knew that the penalty for adultery was death. Maybe not practice at the time, but if somebody pressed the issue, it would have been. And the New Testament history records that Jesus' enemies on more than one occasion implied that Jesus was illegitimate. They said, our father is Abraham. We know who our father is. Meaning, Jesus, you don't have any idea who your father is. You know, in light of these daunting realities, we see Mary's worthy response in verse 38. And Mary said, behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. These are the words that bring God's blessing. These are the same words that that Jesus taught us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Mary totally and completely surrendered herself to God. She didn't say it with clenched lips or a sense of resignation or regret. She said it with joy and expectancy. So I want to close with four closing reflections that I borrowed from Pastor Kent Hughes of Wheaton Bible Church. And first of all, Mary was humble and poor in spirit. Mary was humble and poor in spirit. She was not self-sufficient. And her posture of humility, the posture of her heart, made her open to the grace of God so that Gabriel could say, Rejoice, favored one. The Lord is with you. And for this, Mary was and is called blessed. Secondly, Mary's reflective, meditative nature made her open to the word and to the work of God. She was not superficial. And because of this, she was and is called blessed. And thirdly, Mary was believing regarding God's power. She wondered about the mechanics of God's grace, but she knew that God would do as he promised. And because of this, Mary was and is called blessed. And lastly, Mary gave herself in profound submission to God. I am the Lord's servant, she answered. May it be to me as you have said. And for this she was and is called blessed. If Christ is in us so that we are God's children, then much of what we see in Mary's heart is our model for discipleship, for following Christ. Which means that we as well must cultivate a humble heart before God. An ongoing poverty of spirit that is not only open to God's grace and receptive of it, but it desperately longs for it. Longs for God's grace. We must also intentionally nurture a reflective heart that meditates on God's word. Next, we must have believing hearts modeled on that dynamic certitude of Mary's heart. Now, faith is being sure for what is hoped for and certain of what we do not see. And finally, we must have a submissive heart. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, as we now come to the table of the Lord. Father, I pray that we will come longing for your grace to come to you, Father. That we will come with humble hearts, knowing our need before you. Father, that we would have submissive hearts to be able to receive what you have for us. And Father, I pray that we would have hearts of faith, looking forward to what you are going to do in our lives and in our hearts. And for this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.